Kia ora koutou, katoa, tālo falava. Greetings to you all and welcome to The Body Is Not An Apology, <laughs> which is supported by Canterbury University. Thank you, Canterbury University. Um, and I am Tusiata Avia, a poet and all kinds of other things and guest programmer this year. Um, so, but it's not my fault. Um, <clears throat> and before we start, I just want to um, acknowledge the mana whenua of o tautahi, ngai tuahuriri, on whose land we stand. So just feel that under your feet, under your beautiful bodies. Um, I just also want to let you know, um, if I... Um, I have a neurodivergent brain, um, which means epilepsy for me. So if I fall off my chair, we have Chinwe, who is a doctor in the audience, and she did this. She did this last time we were here, not to me. Um, that probably won't happen. I have never passed out in all my 17 years on stage, but just in case. Um, and then the beautiful Victor Roger will step in as if nothing ever happened <laughs> and carry on seamlessly. And um, I'll just lie there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put your blanket so, on yeah. <laughs> Put your phones on silent if you haven't done so already. Um, and yes, it is my great, great orgasmic pleasure <laughs> to introduce to you Sonia Renee Taylor, who, in the words of the great Maya Angelou, is a phenomenal woman <laughs> and a total phenomenon in many other ways, a global phenomenon. Um, and I'm just going to read you a little bit of um, her bio from her book, which you will all be rushing out to buy after this session, no doubt. So Sonia Renee Taylor is the founder and radical executive officer of The Body Is Not An Apology, a digital media and education company committed to radical self-love and body empowerment as the foundational tool for social justice and global transformation. Global, my friends. The Body Is Not An Apology reaches over one million people in 140 countries each month. Sonia is also an international award-winning performance poet, activist, speaker, and transformational leader. She has appeared pretty much all over the world. Um, there's a long list of countries here, but <laughs> take it from me, all over the world. Um, she has featured on HBO, MTV, PBS, CNN, New York Times, Huffington Post, Vogue Australia, the list goes on. Um, and she's shared the stage with such luminaries as Angela Davis, Naomi Klein, Harry Belafonte, no less, and Rodery, um, Rodery, Hillary. I just thought I'd put those together. Yeah, yeah. Rodery. We're going to call her Rodery now. Hillary Rodham Clinton. And, and now me. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're so lucky to have her not just with us tonight, but in our country for three years yeah. as um, Edmund Hillary Fellow. And she lives on Waiheke. Um, her remit as the um, Edmund Hillary Fellow is to enable radical self-love and body empowerment to address global social justice challenges. Just in your spare time. Just, yeah, just yeah. on the side. On the side. <laughs> so, and um, I just want to read you a little bit of praise for this book. Um, there's so much, but here's a good one um, from one of the co-creator of Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza, who says, Taylor invites us to live in a world where different bodies are seen, affirmed, celebrated, and just. Taylor invites us to break up with shame, to deepen our literacy, and to liberate our practice of celebrating every body and never apologizing for this body that is mine and takes care of me so well. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, uh, Sonia and I were talking last night. Um, we met each other 14 years ago. 14 years ago. And um, we don't look a day past the I 14 know, years ago. I know, I like, know. It's like, it's like we've been frozen in time. In time. I love it. Um, <laughs> it and it was, it was um, surprisingly both of our first big international festivals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. I thought you'd... You know, no. <laughs> yeah, and I thought the same of you. Yeah. I was like, yeah, she's yeah. such a pro. Um, and I've, I've admitted to Sonia that, um, you know, seeing her perform on stage, you know, even before you'd written the poem, the, the movement had started, gave me an experience of your own radical self love mm. that, that burned into me. Um, I don't remember, even though I don't remember the content of the poems, mm. the energy came off the stage and, and entered me. Um, you, transmitted, you transmitted that and I mm. felt empowered by that. Mm. Um, and we also, of, over coffee, yeah. um, I admitted something else to her, which was this weird moment where um, there was a, it was a, a big um, festival in Rotterdam, and part of the festival was the word slab um, champions, yeah? Um, and, of course, I hung out with the slammers <laughs> because they're the coolest. And um, one of, the, one of the, the slam guys, mm -hmm. um, there was a little bit of flirty, and then he tried to shame you, mm. you know? And... Um, and I felt that in my own body mm. as, as body shame. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've never forgotten that, and my body has never forgotten mm. that either. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, is, it is the reality that, like, shame is contagious, right? And we think, so when, even when we're only speaking over ourselves in earshot of someone else, mm. we're thinking we're just communicating a message to ourselves, but we're absolutely telling someone else a message about their body too. Um, and so in that moment, you got the residue mm -hmm. of that shame, right? Particularly as someone who looks at your body and like, well, 
my body doesn't look that different than that person's body. Mm-hmm. So, so if that's true for that person's body, that must be true for my body too. And, and your body made me feel free. Your body mm. made me feel, yeah, yeah. This, is, this is my body. Yeah. You know. And just that quickly, that moment yeah. where someone else can come in and say something can, can totally muddy that, mm-hmm. right? Which is why this like question of like, well, it was in, in the conversation yesterday in the Manly As session, it was like, well, you know, like, does it matter what people say, you know, and when they're not in a formal setting? And the answer is, yeah. Because in a conversation backstage 14 years ago, mm-hmm. a moment where someone body shamed me stuck with you for mm-hmm. 14 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you know, and, and one of the, um, you know, your mission, you know, is, as you state in the book, which is um, one of the most fabulous things I've ever read, is um, evangelizing radical self-love as the transformative foundation of how we make peace with our bodies, make peace with the bodies of others, and ultimately change the world is your highest calling. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's the assignment. Yeah. I mean, which I'm like, eh, you know, not a tiny little assignment. <laughs> Just out here doing some little yeah, shit. Yeah. Um, but it feels so important. Well, it was, so I was having this conversation. Um, I was on Kim Hill yesterday, and... Um, I missed this moment. She asked me this question. She was a little skeptical of, of the ability Who, for radical... Kim? Radi- Kim. Skeptical? Kim Hill, skeptical. No. <laughs> um, she was skeptical of the ability of radical self-love to transform in that way. She was like, like so really oppression you know, is, would, would be alleviated if we thought about the body. And in the moment, I couldn't actually articulate it as clearly as it feels today, which is that as long as we have a, a society that says some bodies are better than others, not just through, the, through language, but through policy, through economics, through social stru- systems and structures, as long as that still exists, then oppression will always exist on the basis of, of bodies, right? So transforming our need to value some bodies more than other absolutely transforms the world, Mm. just quite simply. And the way in which we get to that is first for each of us to individually divest from that system. Mm -hmm. When I no longer need to be better than you in order to be good enough, then none of those things need to exist anymore. And that is how it transforms the world. Mm Yeah, and it feels like, wait, wait, that's so simple, right? But simple and easy are not the same things. And that it really, that we cannot create externally what we have not built internally. That we can't build outside what we haven't built inside first. And so there's a way in which we've been trying to change the world by changing the world, instead of trying to change the world by changing us. And then we keep wondering why it all looks the same, like some new iteration of some other old, ugly thing. And it's because we're using the same old, ugly tools because we haven't built new tools inside yeah, of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, kind of um, brings me to, you know, the book um, is personal, it's political, it's social, but for me, it's deeply spiritual in nature. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the message of all the great, teachers, all the great spiritual teachers, Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. The prophet Muhammad, 
None of you will have faith until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. Mm. The Buddha, you yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. Mm. This all points to self-love. It all all points to, you know, as those spiritual teachers expressed it, the divine, the, the divine love. In us. And that is the foundation. Yeah. That is the foundation. I mean, and I'm not Jesus. No, no, but, you know. <laughs> like, be I clear, was, I'm not Jesus. I was going to say Jesus, prophet, <laughs> or, Muhammad. Or, right. But, uh, Sonia but I'm not saying, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just somewhere on a rock formation, there's my face. Um, <laughs> but what I'm clear is that I'm not saying anything new. That's mm. what matters, right, mm-hmm. is that I'm not actually saying some new, unusual you know, like, so the question, so going back to that sort of question of, like, can that change the world? Well, I don't know. Did Buddha change the world with the notions? Like, did the Prophet Muhammad change the notion, change the world with the idea of love? Did Jesus change the world with the idea of love? So it's not about the people. The message of love is a transformative mm-hmm. tool to building the world we say we want. And the problem is not that the message is wrong. The problem is that we're struggling living it. And so really what I'm just trying to do is give us tools for how do we live this message that we already know is transformative. Yeah. So explain, because I think a lot of people um, wonder about this, the the difference between Mm self-esteem, self-confidence, and radical self-love. Absolutely. So, I mean, who here has had a bad self-confidence day? Like, just raise your hand. Like, some of y'all might be feeling that today. Like, I woke up, I I don't feel great today, or whatever that is, right? Self-confidence and self-esteem are first and foremost fleeting, often externally determined. You feel great when something great happens. You feel like crap when something crappy happens, right? Like that's, it's all over the place, right? In addition, it's also a very individual experience, right? It's like how I feel about myself, right? Radical self-love, first and foremost, is not fleeting, I can be having a really low self-confidence day and still be fully in my radical self-love. Um, one of the moments that I had for, that was a personal sort of epiphany where I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I'm talking about. And I was feeling it in my own body. I was driving in my car and I was lamenting, not feeling very pretty um, and thinking about why I was still single and how much I really wanted to get laid and that wasn't happening often enough. And, oh, that never happened. Right. <laughs> And, and I had this moment where I was having this sort of conversation about not feeling great and, you know, like lamenting the external things. But then I also was like, but there is not one single part of me, even in this conversation, that is doubting my inherent enoughness, mm-hmm. my inherent worthiness and divinity even in this moment where I don't feel pretty, even in this moment where I'm not getting laid as much as I want to, even in this moment where there are things that I don't like, I still am clear that like not being pretty doesn't make me less enough, even if I don't feel pretty today, right? That not being, you know, like not having a partner doesn't make me less enough, even if I am lonely in this moment. And I was like, that's what radical self-love does, right? Is that it sits even when all the things on top of it are shaking. Mm. And that's been really... And then the piece of it that is also, for me, profoundly important is I I want people to feel good about themselves. I think self-confidence and self-esteem are lovely. I want you to have those. But that's not what this work is about, right? This work is about making a world that allows everyone 
access to the experience of their own divinity and worthiness. And the only way to make that world actually requires our interdependence. Mm. That cannot be created in individualism. That cannot be created with the idea that somehow I am not connected to you and you are not connected to me. Right? And so radical self-love acknowledges that we are interdependent, that, that someone can transfer my body shame to you mm -hmm. for 14 years. Mm -hmm. right? That the ways in which I experience and live in my life have an impact on you, and the way you experience and live in your life have an impact on me. Radical self-love proposes that in order to create the world that we say we want, that first of all, we have to acknowledge that it, that we inherently came here as love. You've never seen a two-year-old who hates themselves. You've never seen a two-year-old who's like, my thighs, I just, I can't deal with the cellulite, right? Like, you've never seen it, and you never will. Two-year-olds understand that they're amazing. They think their toes are awesome. They discovered your toes and thought they were awesome. They think that we are magnificent and full of wonder, right? You were two. You came here. You, you were dad. Oh, my gosh, that baby. Uh, <laughs> you came here that way. And so radical self-love proposes that that state is inherent in us. And so it's not us that's lacking. It's something externally that has distanced us from who we inherently are. It's also that it must be the foundation upon which we build the world, which is all the things the same great teachers say, which is love must be that which holds up everything else or else everything else is unstable, right? And then also, radical proposes drastic economic, social, and political change. I don't want you to just feel good because it feels good. I want you to feel good so that we can get out of the way of oppressing and marginalizing people based on their bodies. That's the world I'm interested in, and that don't have nothing to do with self-esteem and self-confidence. That has everything to do with a world that has said that some bodies are more valuable than other bodies, and all the ways in which we have invested in that system consciously and unconsciously. All right? And so radical self-love asks us to shift that to change our thinking in such a way that we can't help but change the systems of the world. Mm. So you, when you came to the, to the act of writing this book, you knew all of this stuff and you went, well, I'm going <laughs> to put all of this stuff down in this book. Or were you teaching yourself these things as you were this writing? This entire journey has process? been teaching myself. Yeah. Every, like, I am so glad that anybody got anything out of Sonia trying to work on her shit. Because that's really, mm -hmm. that's really mm -hmm. <laughs> what this entire journey has been. The body is not an apology from the moment it was a conversation with a friend to the moment it became a poem to the moment it became a Facebook page to the moment it became a company. has all been tiny steps of me trying to trying to figure out how to navigate my own radical self-love journey. Mm. Um, but I'm also not, you know, um, narcissistic enough to think that somehow my experience is just my experience, right? Mm. Like, oh, I'm the only person in seven billion people who's having this, like, you know? Like, I want to be that level of special snowflake, but I'm not. Mm. Um, and so I was like, well, if I'm experiencing this, then somebody else is also experiencing this and I'm kind of the believer that like I have the courage to do anything if I can convince some other people to do it too mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I'm like I'm gonna do this thing and then I'm gonna recruit all of you to do it with me and let's see how it goes um, and that's been what this 
book has been, which is like, let me see if the negative beliefs that I have about myself and my body, let me, let me test them for truth, right? Let me yeah. see how real that story is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let me get you to do that too so that I don't feel all alone in the journey. Um, and that every time I've done that, some new understanding about this work has unveiled itself. Mm. Yeah. And so the, so the book was sort of seven years of experimentation put into language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you tell us the, the story of how the title, the poem, yeah. you know, The Body's Not an Apology came about? Totally. So um, I talk about it a bit in the prologue of the book. Um, I'm a performance poet. That is sort of what my life has been for the last 14 years, 15 years. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I was at a poetry slam in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, with an amazing team of folks who were just, we were all the things, right? We were like disabled and able-bodied and queer and straight and all different races and ethnicities and cultures. And we were this one little team of five people. And I was having a conversation with one of my teammates who was afraid that she might have an unintended pregnancy. And I'm nosy. Um, I historically will get in your business from a deep place of love. Uh, (laughs) uh, And so um, I asked her a question from a deep place of love. I asked her why she was having unprotected sex with this casual partner. you know, that she wasn't really interested in in, that, in any deeper way. And I didn't ask from a place of shame. I asked from a place of like, I've been there, but I'm, so you tell me why you do it, I'll tell you why I did, right? But also like a genuine desire for her to uncover the reasons why she was in the space that she was in. Because we actually can't get out of a place until we actually look at how we got there. Um, and so I asked this question and she was so incredibly honest. I say that there were three things present in that moment that created what I like to call a transformational portal or some other hippie language about when something in the material realm changes because we do something different. Radical empathy, radical honesty, and radical vulnerability were the three things that were present in that conversation. I was really, I asked a really honest question And she practiced a tremendous amount of vulnerability and honesty in answering that question. And then I held that with empathy because I understood. She said to me, my disability, she had cerebral palsy. She said, my disability makes it difficult for me to be sexual, so I didn't feel entitled to ask this person to use a condom. And I said to her without, I, I said to her, and it was not conscious, your body is not an apology. It is not something you offer to someone to say sorry for my disability. And when I said it, something got made that I didn't know was being made. Um, But I did know. I was like, well, that sounds hella poetic. I think I might have to write a poem. (laughs) I was like, that feels very poetic, Sonia. And so I started writing a poem called The Body Is Not An Apology. Um, And I started performing and sharing that poem. And I'm also a firm believer that language creates the world. Literally, language, like, the act of writing something down is why countries haven't bombed each other, mm-hmm. right? Like, literally, <laughs> the entire world is held up by what it is we say to each other. Um, and so, words have power. And so, mm-hmm. when you're walking around saying stuff, 
You are creating a thing, whether you want to acknowledge you're creating a thing or not. And so I was on a stage saying, the body is not an apology. The body is not an apology. The body is not an apology. And it was giving me all of this momentum in the places where I was aligned with it. And it was giving me all of this discomfort and illumination in the places where I was walking in contradiction to the thing I was speaking every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the tiny ways that it was in contradiction was that I had a phone, a selfie in my phone of me getting dressed for an event. And um, I loved the photo. I felt powerful and sexy and empowered. And um, I was totally listening to what I call the outside voice inside of us. The voice that's like, don't you share that, that picture. People will judge you. You are too fat. You are too dark. This is not appropriate. Don't do it. That voice that was in contradiction to my radical self-love voice. It was like, oh, yes, girl. <laughs> and those two things were battling, but the outside voice was winning. And so I didn't show the photo. I kept it hidden away for like four or five months. Someone, and this goes back to your point about the contagion of these things, someone posted a photo in February of a plus-sized model on my Facebook page. Her name was Tara Lynn. She was real, real sexy. Um, and I decided to Google her and look for other photos. <laughs> and one of the first, first images that came up was her in a black corset as a lingerie model for a new company. And the photo I was hiding, I was also in a black corset. And I thought to myself, like, someone paid her quite nicely, mm -hmm. <laughs> to put her juicy thighs on the internet. And why am I hiding? Mm -hmm. That moment where this stranger who did not know me from anything, in just a photo of her being unapologetic in her body inspired me to be unapologetic in mine, mm -hmm. which then prompted me to post the photo, to ask other people to share photos where they felt empower empowered and powerful in their bodies. The next morning I woke up, 30 people had tagged me. I was like, that's really cool. I should make a Facebook page where we get to like celebrate ourselves, affirm our unapologetic glory. Um, and that Facebook page turned into, you know, 30 people, then 300, then 3,000, then 30,000. And then before I knew it, there was an entire team of people. And today we're a global company with 32 folks in five countries who help pull off the mission of radical self-love mm. and reach about 250,000 people a month with new content. Yeah. 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 I know, yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, everybody has their story, you know, around their own, around their own body. Yeah. You know, probably a whole lot of them. Um, and... You know, one of the things that that um, one of the things for me is that I've always been a big woman, mm. and in this society, and particularly in New Zealand, um, and socially unacceptable to be that big. Um, and because of a, a, an illness that um, I that happened. Um, a year and a half ago, I lost 40 kilos, you know, without meaning, without even wanting to. Um, so, you know, I went from, you know, that 40 years of learning to live with this body that just wasn't right mm -hmm. wherever I looked to all of a sudden being so much more socially acceptable, you know. And, and that, that has been a dizzying 
this small thing. And socially acceptable you know, in a body that yeah. is experiencing pain and discomfort, mm -hmm. right? Like the idea that we tell you that you are better in this smaller, painful, difficult mm -hmm. experience than you were in a larger body when you felt physically fine. That's right. And I have to quote you to yourself. You know, um, I do it to myself yeah, all the time. Yeah. So I have sorry. To quote you to um, health is not a state we owe the world. We are not less valuable, worthy, or lovable because we are not healthy. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. We, you know, again, you know, if anything that I really want people to leave with in this work is that we live in a world that assigns value to bodies, that has an entire hierarchy, and that every whatever our thinking is, we can be questioning, how does that thinking fit into this ladder of hierarchy? And if, in, and if I am plugged into that, then I know I am unplugged from a radical self-love framework. It is the easiest way to know whether or not you are on course or off course. Am I deciding that my body is more or less valuable because A, B, C, D, E? Because as soon as you've decided that your body is more or less valuable, you're outside of radical self-love, right? Mm -hmm. And the determination that healthy bodies are better bodies, one, not only um, like reinforces an entire system of ableism, right? Totally marginalizes an, an enormous portion of the, of the population already, but the reality is that most bodies will not stay healthy that from the time you are born, you're basically on a track towards death. <laughs> like, <laughs> and people are so uncomfortable with that, but it is the realest thing in the world. The only thing you, you are guaranteed in life is that you will not complete it without dying. <laughs> like that that is, and so the process of a body that will experience illness, that will eventually break down, that will and is finite, is just true mm -hmm. of the entire population. So the idea that we've decided that some bodies are better than other bodies that will absolutely also eventually be in the same state is absurdity to me. It's absurd. Absurd, yeah. I mean, one of the things, you know, that you said before about the power of words, you know, and we talked about the power of de destructive words. One of the things that I love that you do in the book is you name all these really important things, the global body shame profit complex. I think we can all, all mm -hmm. you know, get some idea of what that is. Body terrorism. Yeah. Let's talk about body terrorism. Yeah. I'm going to quote you to yourself again. Okay. A hideous tower whose primary support theme is that there is a hierarchy of bodies. We uphold the system by internalizing this hierarchy and using it to situate our own value and worth in the world. Yeah. And let's talk about the TSA. Let's talk about the American um, airport scanners. Yeah. yeah, so one of the things that I talk about in the book is that, so TSA and these body scanners that they developed were literally designed, like, one of the things that I think is so important for us to realize about particularly the structural and systemic manifestations of body shame and body terrorism is they are so deeply encoded us in, in us that we create technology to enforce them. Like in this technological age, we are building AI to replicate body terrorism and body shame. We are building new innovations every single day because we have uninterrogated bias that then we code literally code into processes. So TSA, the entire 
Which stands for? Uh, Transportation Security Administration, um, which is under the Department of Homeland Security. So it already tells you uh, in the U.S., because the Department of Homeland Security was not created until after 9-11, which we know was absolutely used to target Arab and Muslim people in the U.S. Um, So even the notion of all the entities that it's nestled under already have a mindset, a framework in which their work was created. Then TSA creates these body scanners, right? But the body scanners are designed to make you stop anyone who has what they call bodily anomalies. So basically, someone decided, here's what we've decided a normal body looks like, based off of our world framework. And if your body looks different than that, then you will immediately be targeted for excessive screening, screening that involves touching your genitals. They literally, I, I literally had a TSA agent touch my vulva in the middle of an airport. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a transgender, you will immediately, every time you try to get on a plane, be subjected to government-sanctioned sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And luckily they get to pay taxes for that. And then I get to pay you for it. Yeah, yeah. With no recourse, mm-hmm. with no recourse. And so um, every single time we engage these systems, we are engaging systems that have these, that have these beliefs built into them, mm-hmm. right? And so it's terroristic yeah. to have to get on a plane and know that you will have to subject yourself to sexual assault and violation in order to fly to a destination. Yeah. And, you know, in case anyone is under, you know, the, the idea that that only happens over there, mm-hmm. you know, um, interesting and horrifying to read um, in your book, immigrants to New Zealand can be deported for having a body mass index over 35. They, in the last couple of years, there was um, a man and his wife who were fighting um, immigration because they were going to deport them because he got too fat. In New Zealand, in New Zealand. So you know, like these, and this is why I, I, this is why I use the word global, because it's not, this is not like the manifestations of it may look different in your particular country, but every single place on this planet has a system of body terrorism in place, mm-hmm. every single one. I was really um, struck also by by what you call the redesigning of the racial caste system. Mm-hmm via prisons Um, and, you know, in case you don't know this, about 15% of the population in New Zealand is Mm Māori. 58% of prison women, prison inmates Mm -hmm. are Māori. 51% of men, prison inmates are Māori, you know. But it's what happens to them also when they come out and... Right, with a lack of rights and resources and all of these other... And, you know, one of the things that I think is important, I think a lot of people pick up the book and their initial thought is like, oh, good, I'm going to try to make peace with, you know, this, you know, these 10 kgs that I gained, you know? And what I'm talking about is that our relationships with bodies span across 
weight and gender and age and sexual orientation and race and ethnicity and all the ways that bodies show up on the planet, right? And so when we are, and so if we're not talking about, you know, a lot of people talk about this book under the framework of body positivity. And what I've always proposed is if we're not talking about how body positivity ends racism, then we're not talking about body positivity. If we're not talking about how body positivity ends ableism or ends homophobia or ends the fact that trans women in the US have a life expectancy of 35 years old, then we are not talking about a body positive world. And that New Zealand has one of the highest suicide rates. rates in the world. Yeah. In the world. Yeah, yeah. If we're not talking about why people would not want to stay on the planet, then we're not talking about body positivity. Um, and so, you know, when we're talking about, and I, uh, this idea of sort of the racial caste system comes from Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, which I absolutely think you should look at if you're interested in the ways in which the prison industrial complex is a replication in many ways of chattel slavery in the US. It actually looks almost exactly the same. They've just put it under the label of prison. And the ways in which New Zealand has mirrored in many ways as it's like taken notes from the US prison industrial complex on how to handle um, criminal justice this here. Um, and so these, these questions that we're grappling with, again, they start with us, but we are talking about major social, political, and economic systems that have to shift. But we actually have efficacy and autonomy and power in how we bring those changes to, to bear in the yeah. world. Which brings me very nicely to um, how do we how does radical self-love change the world? Yeah. So again, you know, the premise, and it, <laughs> when I do workshops, uh, I do a workshop called 10 Tools to Radical Self-Love. And I sort of give the overview of body terrorism and all of these things. And it, at that point, everybody kind of looks the way you all look right now, like, Jesus, we're fucked. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> and what I always want to say is, like, we're not fucked. We built this, which means we have the tools to unbuild it. We have the ability to change these systems. And I think that part of the reason that we think we can is because we think it's out there. Mm. We don't realize it's in here that it's in us, that you got birthed into a world of ableism, fat phobia, transphobia, homophobia, racism, sexism. You got birthed into this world. Mm -hmm. And the idea that somehow you, in your magical awesomeness, got excluded from getting the same thing that everybody else in the world got is absurdity. Right? And so there's a way, I, I use in the book this analogy of speaking French, right? Like if you grew up in a Francophone household, when you were about, you know, I don't know, nine, 10 months, you might say a word, mer, right? <laughs> Père. So I don't know, you say some French shit, right? And, <laughs> and that would be great. You were learning French. You didn't have to pick up a book, you didn't have to do anything. Somebody just had to be interacting with you in French for you to start speaking French. And the older you got, the more you interacted with the language, the more proficient you would become. Right? And nobody would think you were a terrible person because you spoke French. They would think you just grew up in a French-speaking household. Right? You grew up Francophone. We grew up in body oppression. We're not bad people because we have it. We're bad people because we won't interrogate it and change it. That's where our failing comes in. Right? And part of it is because we've decided that we're bad people, so we can't even investigate it. 
If I have that horrible thought, then I'm a horrible person, so I won't even interrogate that horrible thought, which then means that horrible thought continues to operate in the world and operate in you unchallenged. Mm. And we all have our sphere of influence. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. That fella 14 years ago did not think he was transmitting 14 years worth of body shame Mm -hmm. to you. But he did. And that is the... And so... When we begin to look at how am I invested in this system, it, accidentally, you know, with, from, from whatever way it is that that has happened, unconsciously, how am I invested in this system and how do I divest? Which is one, about noticing, like, here are the beliefs I have about my own body. Here are the things that I have, here are the messages the world has given me, and here's where I've totally accepted that. I have totally accepted that I am worth less because I weigh more. I have totally accepted that aging means I'm useless. I've totally accepted that, like, there are all these ways we've accepted those messages. And starting to say, to give that back, right? Like, I, you don't have to keep that, right? And so the, the ability to change the world first comes with the willingness to look inside of us and change those messages and those narratives for ourselves. And then we start being invested. Like, at that point, once I realized that, like, most of those negative messages were me being exploited by a larger system committed to power and exploitation, I was like, fuck that. (laughs) I'm not going to keep hating myself so you can make money. And, And I got really indignant about it. But that indignation made me activated, not only for myself, but for the rest of the world. And then all of a sudden, I could see, like, oh, that system that, that um, you know, that segregates people of color or that upholds a global system of anti-blackness is part of that system. Oh, that system that tells us that trans folks are wrong um, or ill or something's wrong with them is part of that system. Oh, that same system that tells me that I need endless foundation and I shouldn't leave the house without lipstick is the same system that tells me that I need lightning cream and that whiteness is better. All of those things are tied together. And as soon as I start seeing that, I'm like, oh, I can divest from all of those Mm. things. Mm -mm. Then we have a different world. Um, You know, for for each one of us, you know, I mean, maybe you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but I'm not Sonia Renee Taylor. I can't change the world. But, you know, each one of us, it's our sphere of influence, and it's not a solo journey. You know, you can't do it in isolation. You need community. You know, because I'm all about quoting you to yourself today. You know, you say, alone we are an echo chamber of pathological body hatred and oppression. You know, we need each other. You know, we we need each other to do this. One of my favorite parts in my book where I was really excited to write it was where I was like, I'm going to use science as a way to talk about these issues. And so I talk about the epidemiological triad in my book. And I really, I, you, you should have seen me at home. I was like, yes, girl. Um, one, because I wasn't great at science, and so I, I could find a way to put it back together. It was awesome. But in it, I talk about, like, in the epidemiological triad, which is the sort of scientific structure of how um, disease spreads in the world, right? Doctor, correct me if I mess this up. (laughs) Um, But you need an environment, right? You need a host, and then you need the pathogen, right? Those three things, right? So we are the host of body shame, right? 
The environment, meaning the social, political, economic, media messages that we receive every single day that tell us we're deficient, not good enough, failing, not attractive enough, just doing terrible. Why are your teeth not white enough? Why are you, why you got cellulite? You too short. Why you don't have no abs? All of that that you listen from the time you wake up to the morning until the time you turn off media at night, those messages are the environment, right? right? And then, then there is the pathogen itself, which is body shame, which is the notion that somehow we are wrong. As soon as you break one of those things, it doesn't work anymore. So as soon as I decide to stop being the host, carrying body shame inside of me, like some secret failing that only I got, right? I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I can't, you know, I'm, I feel these things and it must be only me and if I tell anybody then I look weak and I'm stupid and not good enough. As soon as we interrupt being the host and carrying that, then we actually stop the process of dis-ease. Literally and figuratively, we stop the process of dis-ease in us and we stop the trajectory of body shame in the world. So that's why community matters. That's why we have to out ourselves the way that you we talk about it. We have to out yeah. ourselves. I'm having this really terrible, stupid thought today about how I'm not good enough and I'm failing at everything. And I have to tell on it because inside of me, it just becomes louder and louder and louder. And outside of me, I get a whole host of people to tell me, that's, that's not true, Sonia. Mm. One of the beautiful things in your book and as, as it's not just a, a whole lot of words, it is full of tools. And you have these um, unapologetic inquiries and radical reflections. And the inquiries are like little exercises that, you know, you can go through with yourself. And one of the ones that, that really struck me, um, I don't know what the hell page it's on now, but um, it, it's about, you know, we all have a story about our body you know, um, and, you know, one of, one of my stories is I'm, you know, I feel really dysmorphic, you know. Sometimes I feel like I'm that big, you know, and, and I can't see, I can't, I can't see what the hell, so, you know, I, that's all I can see, you know, and sometimes I feel this big. And so I was thinking about that story for myself and I thought, how can I reframe it? Alice in Wonderland, you know, she ate the cake and she was massive. And then she could do the things that she was able to do because she was really massive, you know. And then she ate the cake and then she was tiny. And then she could do the things that she could do only if she was tiny. So I thought, okay, how about if I reframe it like that for myself? When I look in the mirror and I see massive, I'm like, okay, what can massive do today? Mm -hmm. What can massive yes. Tusiata do today? <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. And, I, you know, and, and because of this 40 kilo weight loss, you know, which brings me back to the size I was, honestly, when I was 13, you know, like, what can size 14 Tusiata do today? Mm -hmm. You know? So, it's yeah. so powerful. I loved when you shared that with me because it is literally the exact reason why I put that tool in there. Mm. Uh, it's tool number seven, make a new story. Yeah. And, and in the book, I share a story about uh, my ex-partner and how she reconciled her relationship with back hair. Um, she had a lot of shame around body hair, right? Because that's a thing we tell people about, right? We have these messages about what your hair should look like. Um, 
And so, but the intention was that like in fantasy, in imagination, in our creativity, we have the tools to access reframing all of that, of finding a new way to look at the thing that the world has told us is bad. And so the idea of like what can giant Tusiata do today? Mm-hmm. And what, and what am I being, and not even just like what can I do, but like my body is responding to my calling in the world. Yeah. So if I am enormous today, what is the calling in the world that is calling me to be enormous? If I am my smallest self today, what is the calling in the world that is asking me to tend to this tiny, tender person, mm-hmm. right? That is so incredibly powerful and so incredibly gentle. Yeah. with yourself right. in a place where what used to yeah. be is harshness and what's wrong with you and I don't understand why I feel this way and like all of the ways in which we're taught to then what I call in the book meta shame shame for having shame mm-hmm. which is some useless put shit put up your hand right <laughs> put up your hand right. yeah, I feel terrible and I feel terrible for feeling terrible I'm doing it all wrong right and instead of taking on this idea of meta shame it's this idea of like what what is my body asking of me in this time? If, it's, if it is trying to communicate a thing, right? because my body has an inherent wisdom that is in service towards my best self. right? That's one of the pillars of understanding radical self-love is that your body is it's actually totally trying to work with you. It's totally on your side. If it's on my side, what is it trying to tell me right now? If we're allies in this, what's it working towards? Mm. And you know what? Like I just want to like create a village here, we can just all live together, <laughs> you know, for, you know, for some time. And, you know, but alas, the clock is ticking. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm, I'm going to throw it open to, um, to Q&A and then, um, and then we're going to do a couple of performances. So, um, yes, we have roving mics. Do we have two? Yes, we have two roving mics. So um, we have a question down here. And then we have a question over here. Yes. Um, One of the revelationary things in your book for me was um, just talking about illness in a body positive context. Um, I suffer from a couple of chronic illnesses and I know there are plenty of people here who suffer from chronic illnesses. And to get my head around the fact that it's just another aspect of my body. And I shouldn't hate... I mean, I found that great. I mean, could you talk a little bit more about um, how that whole illness side of thing came into your work? Absolutely. So, I mean, one, I think, right, in this piece of language, right, in the ways that we navigate language, right, is what happens when I transfer, I suffer with a thing, and I live with a thing. Right? If I suffered with a partner, I just have to kick them out, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you gotta go, I'm suffering, right? Mm-hmm. But if I live with you, then we can make some arrangements, right? Then maybe, maybe you're here and it doesn't have to be horrible. Mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes it is, sometimes you're getting on my damn nerves, but, but sometimes we coexist, right? And so even in that small piece of like, how do I reframe the relationship that I have with the thing? But I found that we weren't talking about illness again when all of us will, will experience it. There's literally no one on the planet who's like, well, the whole time they're alive and then one day they just go to sleep and die. 
That's not how that works, right? Which means that we have decided that there's an entire portion of the ways in which our bodies exist that we won't be in relationship with. Or that if we are in relationship with it, we have decided it has to be horrible and grueling. And then again, that perspective builds an entire system around it, a whole system that reinforces that your ill body is a terrible body, right? That your ill body is a body that should be uh, cast away from society, right? That your ill body should not get the resources that it needs, that we shouldn't talk about and treat with compassion illness. Like, we create an entire system around it that then further marginalizes and oppresses people. And so, you know, for me, the question is just coming up, where else do we need to give radical self-love? What other areas of being in a body do we need to be talking about? And so, of course, illness was that. And I'm so grateful to a lot of the folks in the U.S. Um, in the communities that I'm in, like SINs and Valid, um, and folks working on disability justice, who have absolutely informed and taught me in profound ways about what it means to include a disability justice lens in radical self-love. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to because I've been very naughty and gone slightly late. So if we can just have one more question um, so we can include the performances. Is that okay with you, audience? Yeah. I'll answer questions at the table too. Yeah, I'll yeah. hang out in the foyer. Yeah, totally. Gladly. She's going to be there till 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> so she can, we'll have a little circle. so she can um, sign books of the line which will stretch all the way around. <laughs> the block and talk about everything. So one more question and then we will bust out the performances. Yes, I think that was the person up here. Hi, Sonia. Hi. Um, I work in health and um, something that I found quite difficult, similar to what you're talking about with illness, is this discussion around health where is the um, delineation between health and body image? Because what I hear a lot is, is to talk um, about BMI um, and exclusion from particular. Um, one that we have is women who um, want breast reductions mm -hmm. and even um, uh, trans guys who want um, mastectomies and they're being uh, excluded that from that because their BMI is too high, um, even though there's actually no um, higher risk with those surgeries. But it's really hard, I find, within a health context to have any meaningful dialogue about um, body image because everyone says, oh, no, 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 they're sick, they're unhealthy. It's unhealthy to have a BMI over um, blah, blah. So yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, how would totally. you? So I think that, first and foremost, we have to be questioning the science. And um, I'm so grateful for um, researchers and writers like uh, Dr. Uh, Linda Bacon, who has a book called Health at Every Size. Um, there's an entire movement called Health at Every Size that really, first of all, is questioning, again, I'm going to use the TSA scanners as a sort of a metaphor, right? If you have a preconceived belief, then you will build the thing that validates your preconceived belief. If we have a preconceived belief that fat bodies are unhealthy, bad bodies, we will only do research that reconfirms that. That's where we'll put the money. Mm -hmm. That's where we will pay the people. That's, you know, like, so one, people aren't doing research that's like, what is the health impact of weight cycling? 
of losing weight and gaining weight and losing weight and gaining weight and losing weight and gaining weight. How is that impacting people's health? People aren't doing the correlations between what does it mean to constantly be in diet cycling and its relationship to mental health. Right? We're, not, we're not asking those questions, right? And we're not asking those questions because all of the research sits on a preconceived belief, right? And so part, and part of the reason that it sits on a preconceived belief is because we can't get you to buy it. The problem is we got to create the problem so that you can buy the solution so that we can continue to further create the problem so you can buy the solution, right? Like that's how you stay on the hamster wheel. This is, so what we talk about is health is really capitalism. And we got to be honest about that, right? Like that there is an entire body, pro uh, global body shame profit complex makes a tremendous amount of money in, in tying together things that are not necessarily connected and that we haven't done the research and won't put the money towards refuting. And so I think that the, the work is to keep challenging, to keep pressing, to keep looking for the people who are doing counter research, who are debunking a lot of those things. Again, I will definitely say starting um, Linda Bacon's book, Deb Burgard, there are some people doing really powerful work trying to shift the thinking of the medical industry so that we decouple those things. The reality is that health and size are not causal. They're not, right? Even, even when you know, biased science tells you they're corollary, they're not causal, right? And so the reality is that I am fat and I am healthy, mm -hmm. right? And that those two things can exist at the same time. And um, our work is to keep asking people why they continue to replicate models that are actually causing harm, right? If the, if the, if the medical industry's onus is to do no harm, and what we're saying is that fat phobia is killing people, then where is their responsibility in doing no harm? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so um, we thought we would give you a little, a little treat. There you go, babe. So this is my daughter, Sabella. heard Sonia's poem, um, I, I heard about her movement, um, and, but it was that one brilliant line, the body is not an apology, that, that set me off on this poem. Are you ready, honey? Is that working? Go Hi. one, two, three. Hi. Yeah, it's working. Okay. Big breath. The body is not an apology. Come on, honey. The body is not an apology. My body is not an apology. My body is not an apology, not a hiding place, not an arranged and artful fortress. My body is not a vapid pool of water. 
My body is not draped. It is not imagined into another size or shape. None not to you, you beloved. My body is a waterfall of flesh. My body is a herd of animals, fat and groaning for the bliss of slaughter. It is the celebration running down the faces of the famished. It is handfuls and handfuls. It is marrow and jelly and sizzling fat dripping steadily into the bonfire. My body is a baptism. My body is a confessional. My, My body, body is the vows of a hundred thousand virgin soldiers. My body is the war that scours the earth. My body is the shalom and the salam. My body is the mother shot suddenly in the street. My body is the frightened child coaxed out from beneath the body of her fallen mother with a promise of honey. My body is the honey drowning the blind, the halt, the deaf, the mute. My body is the hospital. My body is the orphanage. My body, My body is a hundred ice creams lined up like parents. My body is the alofa and the aroha. My body, body is the Sinai, the Red Sea, Hawaii. My body is a room full of ancestors hurtling through the hole in my chest. Hine nui te po. Nafanua. Isis. Aphrodite, their arms and legs and hair hot and wet and tangled as they leave. My body is the distance between our bones, beloved. My body, body. loses its mind and its manners. My, My body, body is quivering, slippery, flushed as a newborn. My body is your mother. My, My body, body is your medicine. My body is the midwife hastening your own birth, pulling you out from inside the womb of yourself. My body is the Quran. My body is the Torah. My body is the Christ. My body is the prophetess. The Samoan goddess of war My body leaves the underworld and rows across the oceans. My body is wet from the journey and frightens those who run to meet me. My body knows only of itself, which is the whole world and the sky and the moon and the planets spinning. My body, My body catches them all in a net made of skin. My body is the tent of my body and, and dwells here, here on earth, earth among us. us. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's all right.
And to finish us off tonight, go and sit down with Uncle Victor, babe. Um, we will have the body is not an apology. Phenomenal woman, Sonia Renee Taylor. Just have a feel of your body is what you're yeah. waiting for. Yeah, 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 touch yourself. Yeah. Raise your hand if you were at Sorry, Sorry Night. Oh, just a few of you. Okay, then I'll do, then I'll do the body as my policy. It's worth hearing more than once. I'm so grateful to have gotten this time to spend with you all. It's really, uh, you know, you're, you're Fano now. <laughs> uh, and um, I'm excited to be on this radical self-love journey with each of you today. Um, and I'm so grateful for this work and the way that it is. And wh whoever or whatever it is that um, chose to allow it to come through me. Uh, this piece is called The Body is Not an Apology. The body is not an apology. Let it not be forget-me-not fixed to mattress when night threatens to leave the room empty as the belly of a crow. The body is not an apology. Let it not be forget-me-not fixed to mattress when night threatens to leave the room empty as the belly of a crow. The body is not an apology. Do not present it as a disassembled rifle when they have yet to prove themselves more than common intruder. The body is not an apology. Let it not be common as oil, ash, or toilet. Let it not be small as gravel, stain, or teeth. Let it not be mountain when it is sand. Let it not be ocean when it is grass. Let it not be shaken, flattened, or raised in contrition. The body is not an apology. Do not present the body as communion, confession. Do not ask for it to be pardoned as criminal. The body is not a crime, is not a spill to be contained, is not a lost set of keys, a wrong number dialed. It is not the orange burst of blood to shame white dresses. The body is not an apology. It is not the unintended granule of bone beneath will. The body is not kill, is not unkempt car, is not a forgotten appointment. Do not speak it vulgar. The body is not soiled, is not filth to be forgiven. The body is not an apology. It is not a father's backhand. It's not mother's dinner late again, wrecked jaw howl. It is not the drunken sorcery of contorting steel round tree. The body is not calamity. The body is not a math test. The body is not a wrong answer. The body is not a failed class. You are not failing. The body is not a cavity, not a hole to be filled, to be yanked out, not a broken thing to be mended, be tossed. The body is not prison, is not sentence to be served, is not pavement, is not prayer. Do not give the body as gift, only receive it as such. The body is not to be prayed for, is to be prayed to. So, for the evermore tortile 10th grade nose, hallelujah. For the shower song throat that crackles like a grandfather's Victrola, hallelujah. For the spine that never healed, for the broken heart that didn't either, hallelujah. For the sloping pulp of back, hip, belly, hosanna for the wild hairs that rove the face like a pack of misplaced wolves, hosanna for the parts we have endeavored to excise, blessed be the cancer 
the palsy, the womb that opens like a trap door, praise the body in its blackjack magic, even in this, for the razor wire mouth, for the sweet God ribbon within, praise for the mistake that never was, praise for the mistake you never were, for the bend, twist, fall, and rise again, fall and rise again, for the raising like an obstinate Christ, for the salvation of a body that bends like a baptismal bowl for those who will worship at the lip of this sanctuary praise the body for the body is not an apology the body is deity the body is God the body is God the only righteous love who will never need repent Kilda. beautiful bodies, um, books. Sorry to come down to this, you know. But do yourself a favour. Do yourself and your body a favour. Buy a book um, outside on sale from UBS. Sonia will be signing. She'll be here till 10 o'clock at night. No, she won't. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to get a smack on the head for going over time. But hallelujah, right? Hallelujah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>